And you, you get that feeling from people who work on their own cars. People who change their own oil are much more familiar with the state of their car than people who don't. Like it's a very different way of interacting with the things that you're in charge of taking care of. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 126 with Andrea Burns. Andrea Burns is here to tell us the story of her resilient and innovative tiny house, The Tomato Box. We discuss what it's like building your tiny house while also living there, how Andrea designed multiple systems for heating and cooking, and her incredible recycled gray water system that allows her to reuse water over and over again. Stick around. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor today. The Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast is brought to you by Tiny House Decisions. Tiny House Decisions is my signature resource that helps you go from dream to plan to even building your tiny house. I'll tell you more about it after the show, but all you should know right now is that I'm offering 20% off for podcast listeners. Just head over to thetinyhouse.net slash THD and use the coupon code TINY. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash THD, coupon code TINY. All right, I'm here with Andrea Burns. Andrea is a researcher by trade, a health sleuth by passion, and an instigator at heart. Her number one goal is to use whatever tools we have to improve what we do and how we do it, which means that simplifying is a way of life and is exactly what led her to Tiny three years ago. Determined to learn as much as possible along the way, she built her tiny house on her own and even designed a completely recycled gray water system. She operates on the mantra, we can do better. Andrea Burns, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. It's, it's great to have you. Um, I was hoping we could just start with um, the story of, of the tomato box. Where did the name come from and how did you get into tiny houses? Yeah, absolutely. So the name, the story of the name is also on the website tomato-box.com. Um, but it started actually when I was a kid. Uh, we spent a lot of time driving back and forth between two states because my dad's job moved and we hadn't quite sold the first house yet. So we spent about a year driving back and forth in, in a Lincoln town car. <laughs> so there were three kids and mom with three kids stuff. We were um, homeschooled. So we had school stuff, we had play stuff, we had clothes, we had so much stuff. And my mom figured out, because she's brilliant, how to get three kids and three kids worth of stuff in a car without any fighting. So she get, she went and got, I don't know if you remember the old tomato cartons with the, the plastic little cartons that used to come in. Like Those cartons came in really hefty cardboard boxes with lids. So she got each one of us 
a cardboard box. And she said, that's what your stuff goes in and a duffel bag for your clothes. And if it didn't fit in the box, it didn't go in the car. So each of us had our own tomato box. And it worked beautifully because it also put the onus on the kids to figure out what was going to get back, what went, what didn't. So the first couple of times you make the trip, you do it wrong, right? You put all of your sentimental items in there the first trip, and then you end up in two, three states away with nothing to do. So then the next time you repack it, you put all your stuff in there, but then you end up bad. And so after a few trips, you kind of get the hang of what kind of balance works for longer periods of time. And that practice just kind of helped me evaluate things in my life in general. So my tiny house is basically just a bigger tomato box. I love it. Same rules apply. If it doesn't fit in the house, you can't have it. Exactly. Do you remember as a kid, like resisting this, this idea, like wishing you could have more or were you like on board with this? Totally on board, mostly because if you have a couple of siblings, anything that keeps the arguing to a minimum, I'm for it. So we spend a lot of time together. I'll bet. <laughs> <laughs> so um i love love the name i love that you've kind of connected tiny house living with an experience that sounds like it was it was kind of formative in your life um what were the circumstances that led you to wanting to to take the plunge and, and do a tiny house so about 20 years ago, I heard there was this thing called living in a van down by the river. And I thought it sounded like a great idea. I realized it, it was supposed to be a deterrent, but I thought it sounded awesome. Um, so I was in college at the time and I wanted to, I wanted a van again or Westphalia or something like that. And I was totally going to live in it because I knew wherever I went to school is not where I was going to stay. So obviously we moved a lot when I was a kid. And I knew that if I had like a legit career in the field I wanted to go into, I wasn't going to be able to stay where I was. And I really don't mind moving, but I hate packing and unpacking. So I thought a van sounds awesome. But then I realized that the windows are super tiny and there's almost no insulation and it just didn't seem like a real healthy option. Um, so I didn't do it. And I just kind of kept an eye on the mobile living situation industry for years. Um, in the meantime, I bought two houses. <laughs> I, I went big before I went little, but I, I always wanted to live in a mobile living situation. So when I believe the first folks who came out with building plans that you could just buy start building was tumbleweed tiny houses and and they said look we know that rvs are built for recreation and that they're awesome for that but the reason they're built with such lightweight materials and um very <laughs> shady specs um is that they're intended to be pulled by a wide variety of vehicles what if you just had to have a truck and we built something heavier 
that was healthier. And as soon as that happened, I said, I'm in. I bought my the ticket to one of their building workshops, drove to Tennessee for the building workshop, bought the building plans, and started shopping for a trailer. Nice. So is, is the tomato box one of the tumbleweed models? It's technically ish. Um, I started with their building plans and then I took out all the stuff I didn't want and changed some of the framing and so that was the starting point. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Tell me about your, your trailer. Mm. Okay. So um I I get to go to a lot of tiny house festivals. I take my house and I give tours and and folks will ask me where I got it and they get real intrigued with the the prospect of finding a trailer that's not as expensive as ordering one from one of the places that specializes in this. And I go, I totally did that. I found my trailer on a farm in North Georgia. Um, the farmer had built it for his farm. So it's welded C-beams and I-beams, and it is the beefiest trailer I have ever seen. However, uh, the axles weren't strong enough. The wiring was old. It needed a good bit of work. And by the time I had taken it, stripped it, put new axles on it, new wiring, the breakaway kit, all-weather coating, all of that, I had spent $94 more than I would have spent if I had ordered one and had it delivered to my house. It also took six months to get the trailer ready instead of six weeks to have one delivered. So... <laughs> I found my trailer and I made it exactly what I wanted, but I would not recommend it. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm looking at the picture of you. I guess you posted it on Instagram recently of you kind of standing triumphantly on top of the trail on top of what I'm assuming is this trailer. As it does it look really old and rusty with like Yeah, it looks it looks the wheels look like they're those like old school solid tires that aren't like actually filled with air they're just like solid rubber mm -hmm. um that's the shape i bought her in right there it's got um, wow cranks on the side of the frame where the the ratchet straps would would crank down um, so we took all that off that off and uh, all the rust was very surface so there was no real damage there it just looks terrible but all of those boards that were on the trailer when when i bought it I saved those, and that's now what my porch is made out of. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So it's, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like what you're saying is like for anyone who's thinking about a used trailer, just don't. Yeah, unless you know the person and you know it, it's already like 90% there and you're just finishing it up, just order one. They, they're they already built for it. They've already got the right axles, the right tires, the the right coating, it'll knock off about six months of your, your build job. Yeah. And, you know, save you from the gruntiest of grunt work. <laughs> yes. Yes. But one caveat, if you're a welder, go for it. <laughs> right. Sure. If you own a sandblaster. Mm -hmm. And a paint shop. <laughs> Um, so I get the sense that, that DIYing this build was a big, a big part of it for you. Is that, would that be true? Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, 
I, I have a lot of friends who want to help me and I love the fact that they want to help me, but they're like, we could show up with five of us and just knock out the rest of this and you'll be done. And as much as I want to be done, the building it is as much is as important to me. So I keep going, no, no, actually I I'd really rather I do this part. <laughs> so like there were I had friends come over and help with some of the framing and especially the getting it up onto the uh the trailer and things like that. Like there were periods of time where I welcomed help and because I needed it desperately. But if it was something I could do myself, I wanted to. And a lot of that um is that I'm stubborn, but <laughs> but I'm also learning. And if I'm going to build more of these, I want to do all my learning on the first one so that it's a whole lot easier going forward. Um, on top of that, it gets rid of a lot of the fear. Um, when you don't build it yourself and something happens, you don't know what to do about it, right? I, I curb checked something in D.C. And skidded the top of my wheel well. But I knew exactly how many layers there were and what needed to happen to you know, fix it. So I just pulled into Home Depot and fixed it in the parking lot. If I hadn't built it myself, I wouldn't necessarily know what needed to be done. And that introduces a level of fear that I don't have to deal with. Yeah, there's definitely a level of thinking the word control but that's like i'm not saying it in a negative way just like when you <laughs> built your own house you really you understand it a lot more yeah yeah and you you get that feeling from people who work on their own cars right people who change their own oil are much more familiar with the state of their car than people who don't sure. and, and when you ask someone what kind of shape is your car in you'll see like oh i'm not sure i don't have any lights on i think it's okay like it's a very different way of interacting with the things that you're in charge of taking care of. Sure. Curious if you have any, um, just any advice that you give to people who are like, I want to DIY my own tiny house too. Um, like, what do you, what do you say to them? Find shelter. <laughs> I built most of mine out in the open. And I spent 75% of my time battling the elements, tarping and untarping. And then once you untarp it, you have to let it dry out before you can do anything with it. Like just the lumber itself was, it was, I was constantly cleaning or drying it. Build it indoors if at all possible. And if it's not possible to be indoors, at least be under something. Yeah. I'll echo that. I was lucky enough to have a, a covered space for a lot of the framing and sheathing. Um, mm -hmm. But then I was outside, but luckily I was like behind a barn. So there was a place for the tools to be and place to like do bigger cuts that wasn't outside. But yeah, that's, that's great advice. Yeah. Now it's not entirely, is the house done or are you still working on it? No, um, she is pretty well done on the outside and about 30% done on the inside. What I did is I got it to a place where I hadn't, I want to go ahead and get it NOAA certified, just future, future proofing it. And I got it to a place where she's livable. She's, 
she travels. Like I've been living in it full time for three years already, but I don't want to close in the walls until I finish getting the inspections done because then I just have to open the walls. <laughs> so I've kind of gotten it to a place where I need to schedule inspections and get that sorted before I can close anything up. And, and then I ended up moving my workshop and then I, <laughs> then I, came out of town and got kind of stuck out of town so yeah I've, I've lost a little bit of time last summer I moved to my workshop so where I did most of the building was in one location and then I moved and that took a couple of months just moving all the lumber and the tools and everything else and then recovering from moving so I'd say in the last year I've lost about six to nine months just moving, recovering, or traveling. Uh, so I just haven't had a chance to finish it. Yeah, and it's hard. It's hard to work on the tiny house on the inside, period, just because it's tiny, but I can't imagine doing it and living there. Oh, yeah. See, that's another thing. I have to wait for good weather because in order to work on one wall, to move out. I have to move everything out. Yeah, I did that when I installed the flooring. I moved all my stuff out of the house and then I took a picture and I posted it on Facebook and I said, if you guys see this, I promise it's not a yard sale. Don't stop. Please don't take my things. <laughs> so yeah, I had to have, I did that three or four times through the process of, of putting in the flooring and um, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Just a lot of work, just moving before you can even start doing the build. Yep. Um, what has been, if you, if you're willing to share, what has been your build cost to, to date? To date, I think I'm around, I could be off by one or two, but I think I'm around 28,000. Um, and I think when I finish, cause I still have a lot of materials that I'm, I'm repurposing. I probably still have a few more things I need to buy. So I think I'll finish up in the low thirties. Yeah. Cause you like. Are your kind of major appliances in like heat and cooking and those kinds of things? Yeah, because I didn't go with major appliances. Heat, I've for three years I've been using two heaters. Uh, one is an infrared heater that's electric. You just plug it in, set the thermostat, and it goes. And it does a really good job of keeping everything kind of stable. But when it gets really cold, like if it's in the 40s or 30s, I pull out the gas heater. And turn that on for a few minutes and it keeps the whole place up because I've got ridiculous insulation. So, <laughs> so it does a fine job. And I've been using those for three years and I'm thinking I might just keep using them. Um, as far as cooking goes, I've got five or six different ways to cook in the house. Um, none of them are built in because if I only have this much counter space, I don't want to dedicate that to a stove. So I get to have that counter space back when I'm not cooking. And that's helpful. So I've got a camp stove, a butane camp stove. I've got a rice cooker, which is kind of like an Instapot, but it, it doesn't hold the pressure like that. Um, so I can do crock pot stuff. I can steam stuff. That's a pretty good all-around cooker over there. Um, then I've got a toaster oven that's super tiny and, and adorable. I've got a charcoal grill. And I've got a second camp stove. So between those, 
I really haven't had a need for anything else. Yeah, that's that's quite quite an array of cooking. I love eating. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> well, that's that's awesome that you've got you've got multiple heat options, you've got multiple cooking options. It sounds like I think that there's a misconception that living in a tiny house means being really limited. But I think that in some ways it allows for a lot more possibility. Like there aren't that many normal normal houses that have like <laughs> to viable heat sources or like, you know, so many different ways to cook right there. Yeah. So I have backups for my backups and they all use different fuel sources. So that's something else that um, kind of the survivalist in me feels like regular houses are, I love air quotes, by the way, I'm air quoting over here. Regular houses lack is that if something goes down, you do not have a backup. If the power goes out and you have electric appliances, so like my cooking situation i've got two things that use butane i've got two things that use electricity i've got one that uses charcoal and i think the only thing i'd like to add to that is i'd like to add something that uses uh propane so i'm pretty well covered if i only have one source of energy i can use it solar power too i want one of those solar cookers that you just kind of stick out in the sun and it thing yeah those are really cool solar ovens mm -hmm. i think you can i think you can build those yourself too yeah so you bring your tiny house to festivals right yep how how many have you gone to how how far has this has the tomato box traveled Ooh, i haven't tallied it up in a few months um i want to say we're Almost, maybe not 10, but I think close to 10 uh, festivals. Wow. So Steph, eight, nine, somewhere in there. And she has, she has over 4,000 miles on her. Wow. Yeah. Any, like, troubles towing? Not towing, no. I have had a couple of tire blowouts, and that had to do with the used trailer. So when I had all that trailer work done, the guy who, um, granted, he was trying to save me some money, and I appreciate that, but this was not a corner worth cutting. He put used wheels on it. So the tires were new, but the wheels were old. So two of them kind of had leaky spots in the wheel. So they were losing air through, through the wheel, not the tire. So then when the tire gets low enough on air, you just bust the seam. So you end up with a flat tire anyway. And it's terrifying because when you have something that's heavy enough to need two axles, when you lose one of them, it sits down on the other one. So I'm driving down the road 75 miles an hour like you do with a house. And all of a sudden I see like lots of smoke in my side view mirror and i'm like what in the world and i'm passing people so i have to get over in front of them and over on the shoulder and it's in the middle of nowhere at night nobody's open um so that was that that took a good 14 hours to correct so you had to get a new new wheel and new tire yes new wheel and new tire and at, while i was at it we went ahead because at that point you kind of go in, 
I don't trust any of them. Right. Do them all. All of them. All new tires. I've got another spare, you know. Yeah. Sorted the house out. Um, but we did reuse a couple of the rims. They're the, the wheels that looked like they were still good. And uh, it wasn't. A few months no. later, a few months later, I get up one morning on my way to a festival. And fortunately, it didn't happen on the road, but flat tire. What in the world? It wasn't even going anywhere. Same thing though. It was it leaked out the wheel and um black tire. I'm like, okay, all new wheels. <laughs> all of them. <laughs> oh man. Probably better to do that in advance. Yeah. And one thing that I've heard is that sometimes a, a cheaper trailer will come with like eight ply tires and that it's a good idea to upgrade to the ten ply. Yeah just have the yeah. best tires you can have always go with the best tires i mean it's that is the one thing between you and every and the rest of the world that's what your whole house sits on don't cheap out on the tires and always have a spare yeah yeah AAA will come and change them for you but they can't do anything if you don't have a spare and i know a lot of people who do not travel with their spare tires yeah yeah and that's an easy easy thing to do if you're already going to replace the tires that are on the house just take you know use a couple of them as spares mm -hmm. exactly so why why do you go to festivals what what makes you want to you know put you put you and your tiny house at at great risk and you know at great cost i'm sure in fuel and time yeah. um why do it Oh, there's so many reasons. One of them is, and and I argued with the um the organizers when I the first one I went to. I said my house isn't done yet. I shouldn't be here, and they're like, no, no, it's good for people to see the bones. It's good for people to see something in process. So not every experience they have is of a pristine, fully finished, staged home. Like seeing these in process kind of makes it more real. I said, okay, fine. So that was the first one I went to. And my experience with the first one, uh, it's like they say your first hit's free. <laughs> I was hooked. Because what happened was people would come in and they'd go, who built this for you? And I'm like, this this guy, I bought, I built it. And they're like, uh-huh. Yeah, but but who'd you pay to do the heavy stuff? I'm like, I me and and those conversations kept happening often enough that after they saw the rest of the houses they'd come back and talk to me like person that was one thing that was really amazing because I know that is going to infect other conversations they have with other people sometimes that's just how it needs to start and that's important the other thing that happens is little girls they come in my house and they're like, this is cool. And their mom's with them. And she's like, what do you mean you built this by yourself? I'm like, you're only moving one stick at a time. I can pick up a piece of lumber. And she's like, but I don't know how to build a house. I was like, neither did I. You know, you don't need to know how the roof works in order to do the subfloor. You you only learn one thing at a time. and And you can, you know, put it together like anybody else. And the little girls will stand there 
like the picture of me standing on my trailer when I first brought it home. They'll stand there with their hands on their hips and they look up and they go, Mom, we can do this. And they're so right. But seeing the way their moms react to that, that it, that'll get you. Yeah. That'll get you. Because these girls are not going to grow up with that fear and that doubt that they don't know if they have permission to do something. I mean, like, what are you doing? She did it. <laughs> and it's amazing. It's amazing to see that transformation. Yeah. Wow. I hadn't, hadn't thought about that. As, I mean, that's a really kind of, in a way, a selfless thing to do. Like you're bringing your house to these festivals and inspiring, inspiring people that they can do it too. Like kind of like if I can do it, so can you. Absolutely. And I also share with them that some of the designs in the house, like the water system, is one that I made up because I didn't like the way the rest of them worked. I, I, they were inefficient. They were poorly thought out. They they work backwards as far as I'm concerned. So what I'm also doing is I'm giving people permission to question the way that we use it. And sometimes that's all people need. Let's talk about that water system. I am I am very curious about it. So, um, I and I know nothing about it other than than what is kind of in your bio that you you designed your own. DIY gray water system. So walk me through it. Yes. Okay. So the way we normally build water systems, and this is true of regular houses, especially true of RVs, but what we do is we require somebody to give us clean water. We put it somewhere to hold on to it, and then we use it, make it dirty, and then we have to find a safe place to put it where either it won't hurt anything or somebody else will clean it for us. And that's water usage, anywhere you look, in the United States. And I thought, well, I only have a tub and a sink. My water's not that dirty to begin with. I bet I could clean it and reuse it. So I started trying to design a system that worked with that same workflow, but with a, a loop in the middle. And it was so ridiculously complicated. There were multiple pumps and I had to have a, I had to create a custom tank so that I could have two inlets and like, it just got out of hand. And I was sitting somewhere with a napkin because my dad's an engineer. So we do a lot of drawing on napkins. So I'm drawing on a napkin and I thought, well, what if I'm doing it backwards? What if I did it the other way? And since if I need to filter water to put it back in the clean tank, what if I just filter water to start with? So anything that comes into my clean tank, has I'm filtering it, and then it's ready to use. And I use it, and I filter it again and put it back in the tank. Well, if I'm already filtering everything, why do I need somebody to give me clean water? I don't. I could use rainwater. Okay. So what if all the water that comes into the house goes into the gray tank first? Then I filter it into the clean tank, which I'm pointing up because my clean tank is above my head. I just use gravity as the uh, water pressure. So I pump it up into the, green, the clean tank, use the water. It goes back into the gray tank. I filter it again, put it in the clean tank, and I can do that indefinitely. 
until I lose water to usage or, um, or evaporation, and I need to put more water into it. But that system works. And since I have to pump it into the clean tank to build up water pressure, when I dump my water, it has to come out of the clean tank. So if I want to lose 500 pounds before I go drive through the mountains and I dump my water, it's clean water. So what I can do with my house is take in dirty water and put out clean water instead of the other way around. So I can actually improve the condition of my environment by using it. That's like the campsite rule plus. Right? So how, I have so many questions. How are you filtering the water? It's a four or five, I can't remember, the five stage filter process. So one thing is I, I have a, a large sediment filter going into the gray tank so that when I use water, so it keeps stuff from getting in there. And then the one I pump through, this also means I only need one water pump, which is great. It goes through a large sediment filter again, and then it goes through two ceramic filters. Now ceramic filters can capture incredibly small particles. So anything that makes it through those two ceramic filters, including viruses, and get those. Those that water goes through a salt-free and chemical-free water conditioner, which basically just takes anything that's smaller than that and it attracts it until they all stick together and they're big enough to break off and get caught back in the system. So those filters that I'm using, when they get gunky, you take them out, you wash them, you put them back. They're not even throwaway filters. And it means that I won't have scale in my clean water bag. So that's another maintenance item that I'm not even going to have to deal with. Like, why are we building these all over the place? <laughs> it's really, it's fascinating. I mean, do you, like, so you said you have a tub in the house. Mm -hmm. So, um, like, you can, you can take a bath or a shower and use soap and, like, filter that back out? Yep. I already been, like, years ago, um, I started reducing the number the amount of weird stuff in the products that I use like I, I didn't want to use products that made my cat sick I didn't want to use products that dried my skin so the soap that I use is an olive oil based fragrance free soap. I think kiss my face makes it and it's awesome but it's just a bar soap very simple so there's no dyes or weird things to or fragrances or anything like that that need to be filtered out so those filters are going to last a lot longer than if i were using like dawn dish detergent that would be different right so nothing like with bleach or like ammonia or anything like that right or or dyes or fragrances or anything like that wow how big how much storage do you have in the system um so the gray water tank can hold 45 gallons. Um, the clean water tank can hold more than that, but I wanted that tank that it's a it's a bag so that I also don't have to vent it to let the air out. So it 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 expands when you put water in it, and then as you use it, it gets smaller. So I I simplified that by using a bag, um, and it's a little bit bigger than the gray tank, so I can't overfill it. What's crazy about that is I've been tracking my water usage for three years now. 
I don't use more than two gallons a day. And that, that's when I'm doing laundry. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I use so little water that I would probably have to run extra water at night so that there's enough in the tank to filter it back up into the clean tank. Right. Clean back. Yeah. I was going to ask, well, actually, my next question is, do you have a, an easy way? Can you use the pump to pump dirty water into the gray tank? How do you get water into the gray tank, I guess, is my question. So there's two basic ways. There's one, one's pressurized and one's unpressurized. So I have both valves on the outside of the house. You, any RV supply place has these. So you have like an RV fill valve. Okay. So if it's rainwater, I just make sure the tank is above the, the valve. And gravity takes care of that. If it's a hose or city water, that goes into the pressurized one. So anywhere I can get water, I can use it. And do you collect rainwater like off the roof? Do you have like a gutter? Yeah. So cool. Um, do you like kind of go in cycles? Like do you wait until the fresh tank is empty and the gray tank is full to to like and then you like turn on the pump and you do like a big cycle of filtration or do you kind of just like run it piecemeal like each night you just refilter the water that you use i would recommend doing it daily at night before you go to bed just run the pump till the water's been processed because if you leave um dirty water in the gray tank for more than about 24 hours it'll start fermenting depending on what's in there. Get stinky. Um, you just want to get that chance because yeah. then you have a cooking issue. Yeah. Um, how, I, I, I even lost my train of thought. Just like my mind is kind of funny. <laughs> oh, I remember. How much did the system cost to set up? So, obviously, I went way overboard on the filters and everything. But the difference between that upfront cost that I put into it and what maintenance would look like if I didn't, I'm spending less. So all told, I think I spent tanks, like tank bags, filters, hoses, connection points, um, the fixtures, all of it, probably around four or 5,000. That was kind of my big ticket item for the house. Like, I'm not putting granite countertops in there, obviously. <laughs> right, right. So I spent that money on my water system. Um, but the, the maintenance and the ongoing costs, there really aren't any. Right. I, don't, I don't have to pay for water if I don't want to. I don't have to replace filters. I rinse them and put them back. So, the, like, it just made sense to spend a lot up front instead of creating a maintenance issue. Yeah, and plus, I mean, that... Water off grid is one of the hardest nuts mm-hmm. to crack. And yep. you've kind of unlocked that in this house because it doesn't matter what climate you're in, you've got your you've got your water in this loop of in this filtration loop. I mean, do you do you drink the water? Yeah, absolutely. This is awful water. And it like tastes like fresh water. Yeah, that, that filter system does an amazing job. Honestly, city water tastes funny. <laughs> so if I do have some city water, 
I actually have a burpee that sits on my counter and I'll filter it through there just for the drinking. But yeah, this, this system produces potable water. Wow. If this seems like one of those things where you said it yourself, like why we're doing this backwards. Um, mm-hmm. And do you, do you have like photos of this or like documentation of this that you share with people? Cause I just feel like people need, people need this. Most of the time people see it in person. Okay. Um, but I am actually working with a patent attorney right now to nice. get the patent under underway so that I can then publish those those documents and be like, build more of them. I would love to add this to some of the options, like some of the manufacturers. I know a good number of those. If they could add this as one of the options for an install, be like, this will increase the cost of your house, but also it's an option. That would be amazing. If if I could license folks to to put them in all the tiny houses. Yeah, I mean, I could see also just either you creating it or just selling plans for kind of like Mm -hmm. a DIY builder. Absolutely. A module. Yeah, this, um, this, the patent application has to have the design. And I also include like where I got my parts. So you can look at the specs of those. So if you have another resource, absolutely use it. But if you don't, here are places you can order it from. Um, yeah. <laughs> Putting that together. I think that's, that's the next thing that goes on the website. Nice. That's exciting. Um, and I can't wait. I'm like, yeah, I'm speechless. So cool. (laughs) And how did I miss? So we were at big mass together and I don't know that I saw the tomato box. So yeah, big mass. I was going to be in New York for the week following that. So parking a house in Manhattan is hard. Not going to lie. So instead of driving my house up there, I just flew up to big mass and and I helped build the um, the balloon tiny house. Helped with that, and then I I was a speaker a couple times, and I just I didn't bring my house to that one. All right, I well, want to. I want to bring it this year if we do it again. If we yes. don't do it again, bring it next year. Okay, it'll happen at some point. I well, I'm not quite sure about this year, about what's happening this year. Nobody knows what's happening this year. 2020 is canceled. <laughs> it really how is it june already yeah i mean so you you were mentioning to me in the pre-interview that you you flew somewhere for a long weekend in march and you're still there yes march 11th um so i haven't slept in my house since like march 5th or so i had a funeral to go to and as soon as i got back from the funeral i swapped out my bags and went to the airport. So I have, I was flying up here to New York for a long weekend, about four or five days. So that's all I packed for in March. So it's winter clothes. And I haven't been back home yet. So that was three months ago. And um, <laughs> yeah. It's almost like you live in a tiny house. It's almost <laughs> like uh, we just kind of roll with those things. We're like, I don't need much. <laughs> I've got a phone and a laptop, some shirts. Yeah. Well, one thing that I like to ask all of my guests uh, is what are two or three like books or resources that have inspired you that you'd like to share with our listeners? Ooh. 
Okay, so what's really cool is that they're probably they're not tiny house related, but they're personal related, lifestyle related, that kind of thing. Actually, well, we have to. I'm just remembering there's like another topic that we have to talk about. So let's let's do this question and then we'll do the last topic. Okay. So the first one I recommend everybody is Danielle Laporte's um, The Desire Map. So essentially, just like we have water systems backwards, we have goal setting backwards. So we go, oh, I want, I want this kind of career and I want to drive this and I want to live here. Why? So the desire map takes you through a process of asking that question and getting real, like, it's a very raw kind of process you go through with yourself in all these different areas of your life. And you get down to the, what do I want to feel in each of these areas of my life? And then how you want to feel dictates how you go about doing whatever it is you want to go about doing. And your goals may change or they may not. But how you go about achieving those goals will change because now it's not about getting, making progress towards a goal by any means necessary. It's the process is as important as getting there, which most people, if you talk to a lot of tiny housers, um, we've all kind of come to that conclusion. Nobody wins any races. There's no winner. But the process of, of doing all of this is where the good stuff is. And so this kind of turns goal setting on its head and gets you to kind of figure out what's truly important to you. And then you get to find ways to feel that way all the time. Awesome. That's a big one. I mentioned my other passion is health sleuthing. So there's a bunch of books in that regard. So I have three fairly significant genetic issues that I have been able to completely manage by cutting out sugar. Weirdly enough. So I eat no fructose. Glucose is fine. I can have potatoes and stuff, but no fructose. And um, I don't have migraines or arthritis or GI issues or narcolepsy or like there's so many things I don't have to deal with anymore as long as I take care of that. So there's a couple of books that have really helped solidify what I'm doing lifestyle-wise. So even if it's not a health issue, everything affects your health. So lifestyle, paying attention there. Um, one is called Pharmacology, spelled with an F, Pharmacology. That one's a really good thought starter because it's kind of the journey that a, a physician took through learning how ecosystems work, because our bodies are ecosystems, not machines. So that's a really good one to start with. There's also one called 10% Human, which is fascinating. And that one is essentially about all the weight and, and, and mass that you carry around. Only about 10% of it is you. The other 90% is all the other stuff that you carry with you, bacteria. Like the microbiome, yeah. Yes. It's, it's really cool when um, I know some folks who, they, they aren't real aware of what they're doing to their system when they take broad-spectrum antibiotics for things that don't need it. And there was the time for that. 
But when they take those and they kill off most of their biome, and then they don't know why they don't feel well. <laughs> like there's there's a there's a lot to manage here. But they just they don't know. And and their doctors aren't really well versed in that either. So they're they're not really sharing that wealth of knowledge. Well, those are some great, great recommendations. That's, that's three good ones. That's three awesome ones. So normally I'd be like, well, thanks for being on the show. But then I remembered um, that you kind of tease this, like if I'm going to build more tiny houses um, and you've written about this quite beautifully. So why don't, why don't you tell us about kind of what your plans are in the future for the next tiny house and then the next tiny house after that? Absolutely. So I would recommend reading what I wrote on the website because it's way more eloquent than I am in person. Because I have editing rights when I type. But yeah, I have, I've worked with a number of different types of communities throughout my life. When I was eight, I worked at a nursing home. And then I worked at a senior citizen center. And then I worked for some churches that were doing work with homeless folks. And that's when I started really trying to understand what that looked like. And, and then I went into market research where essentially I study people for a living. And what I found really interesting is that homeless folks and, and the situation of homelessness doesn't look anything like what we've been taught. All, all of the assumptions, all of the, um, the short list of characteristics of someone who's homeless, they don't apply in 90% of the cases. So what I thought, and, and there's some, some things we learned uh, when I started down that health route too, that there's there's some real economic impact here. There's it uh, medically speaking, it costs us more not to take care of our, our folks who are homeless. It does. They cost three or four times more to take care of when they do not have stable housing. Them, it affects their health. It affects our um, just the cost involved. It affects like once you get in that position, getting back out of it is a nightmare. I've nearly been in it a few times over my life. So the fact that I have a resource network of people who wanted to make sure that that I wasn't in fact homeless is the only reason I wasn't. Not everybody has that. And a lot of the times it just happens because the kid got sick and you had to take care of the kid. So you missed too much work and they laid you off or their quarterly numbers didn't look good. So they laid off half the staff and it wasn't anything you did wrong. And you missed one paycheck. That's it. Over two thirds of the U.S. population is one paycheck away from eviction. And that's staggering when you think about how easy it is to end up in that situation. So I thought there are plenty of people who, if they want a tiny house, they can go contact one of the manufacturers and pay for one to be built. That's awesome. Go for it. You know, fund, fund the movement. That's cool. I'm not really needed for that. But what I can do is since I spent decades learning about communities and health 
and what say a, a, a community of need in LA is going to look very different from one in Atlanta where in LA you've got some very distinct groups of people that tend to be homeless you've got middle-aged dudes which is one of the few places in the country where that's true and you have teenagers a lot of teenagers in in that part of the country so what that community needs is different from Atlanta which is mostly mothers with kids so i've kind of been consulting with a few of the cities that are building tiny house communities for their homeless populations and kind of helping them design something that works for the communities they're serving. And as soon as I finish the inside of my house, <laughs> what I get to do is I get to show up at those build sites and help. And I'm free labor, experienced free labor. I get to help do that. Plus, since all of my cooking methods are mobile, none of it's built in. I can I can use all of them at once. I can use them outside, which allows me to cook very large things. So I can be a mobile food kitchen too. So I can not only house, help house, but I can also I can feed the staff that's working. I can feed the people who are going to be living there. And I can do all of that legally because um, one of the restrictions, if you're, if you built like a food truck, you can't live in a food truck because since everything is built in and it is a dedicated space for creating and serving food, you can't share that space with sleeping. It's not allowed. But my house, A, I'm having a cookout, B, I can cook it outside. So I can separate those spaces. You just gotta find creative ways to get around the rules. They're there to protect us. The rules are there to protect us from certain behaviors. So with, with that in mind, I'm I'm a fan of, of being technically correct. Nice. And I feel like your water system too has a lot of potential for that community. Um the United States is one of the only places where people actually have their water shut off for lack of payment and just being able to be self-sustaining from a water perspective is is amazing it's got incredible potential and i i would love to see systems like this installed in new houses um you know we're already putting in filter systems there's no reason we, we couldn't be building something like this but that was another another one of the arguments against building tiny house, like micro neighborhoods for homeless folks is somebody's always going to say, well, who's paying for that? Who's paying for the electricity? Who's paying for the water? I'm like, what if the water's free? What if as they use water, you get more free water? <laughs> like, we, we can find a way to do this where everybody wins. And, and the, the idea that and honestly it's a cultural thing we've been taught this that everything is pie and there's only so much of it it's not true mm-hmm. there is there are so many opportunities to use resources in a way that's smarter so that everybody wins you don't have to lose for someone else to to have decent living conditions you just don't 
Nice. Well, I'm glad we got to talk about about this too. Um, Andrea Burns, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you so much to Andrea Burns for being a guest on the show. You can find the show notes, including links to Andrea's website and Instagram account and photos of the tomato box at thetinyhouse.net slash 126. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 126. Now I want to tell you a little bit more about our sponsor today, which is the guide Tiny House Decisions. Tiny House Decisions is a comprehensive field guide to help aspiring tiny house builders make the right choices for their unique homes. In it, you go through the decisions that I made, what I ultimately decided for my own house and why, and how those decisions affected the overall project. I'll help you identify key choices and understand the relationships between them so you can plan your house effectively without spending countless hours researching. The guide has helped readers save hundreds or even thousands of dollars on their tiny houses by avoiding common mistakes. And most important, it will help you feel confident about the choices you're making because you'll know they're the right decisions for you. To learn more, head over to thetinyhouse.net slash THD. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash THD and use the coupon code TINY when you check out for 20% off any package. Well, that's all for now. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.